Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Daniel Hatcher is a law professor at the University of Baltimore. He spent his professional career as a legal advocate for America's vulnerable children and families. He's former senior staff attorney at the Children's Defense Fund, former assistant director at the Maryland Legal Aid Bureau, and former staff attorney for legal aid in the Baltimore Child Advocacy Unit. So he knows the court system well and also knows how often young and old mostly poor, find themselves caught up in the legal system. And that experience leads Daniel Hatcher to this conclusion. He says that around the country, courts and probation agencies, prosecutors' offices and other agencies have turned the justice system into factories for raising revenue off of the mostly poor children and adults who come before them. Here's one example. Hamilton County Juvenile Court in Ohio, which encompasses Cincinnati. Hatcher says Hamilton County Juvenile Court churned through 23,923 new case filings with 109,000 hearings in just one year. And they only had two judges to churn through all that. Well, those judges hire attorneys as magistrates to handle the caseload. And the court's own documentation, as shown by Hatcher, says that, quote, the court has allocated three of its magistrates to preside over child support cases exclusively, whereby increasing its entitlement to federal funds, end quote. And those federal funds claimed by the court totaled more than $1.8 million back in 2013. Now, again, this is just one example of many in Daniel Hatcher's new book. It's called Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. And he joins us today from Baltimore. Professor Hatcher, welcome to you. Hello, Magda. Greetings from Baltimore, and thank you so much for having me on the show. So tell me, since you spent so much time um, in courts yourself uh, as an advocate, when was the first time you noticed that there was this uh, sort of pervasive money issue, as you um, outlined so clearly in the book? Right. Well, it's been somewhat continuous, right? You know, so my earlier, earliest experiences uh, were representing children pulled into the highly dysfunctional Baltimore foster care system, and I represented hundreds of, of foster youth of of all ages, you know, and there are moments from, from that time that are, that are seared in, in my memory. Like I remember a particular youth, he was a little older, um, uh, about 12, 
Um, and what was a fairly considered by the system simple proceeding in terms of a review, um, he's desperately wanting to be reunified with his mother, who was struggling you know, with, with poverty. Um, I wasn't able on that day to make it happen, right, you know, through, through the advocacy. And, and I'm having to explain to him outside in the crowded, chaotic courthouse halls um, that he's not going home to his mother. And he pulls on this cap, you know, like at that point, he's got this stern, you know, sort of a tough exterior. And um, but at that moment, he pulls on his cap. He's, he's just looking at me initially stoically. And then and then his eyes start watering, you know, like so. You take that with you as, as you move forward. And, and if you flash forward, I represented a former uh, foster youth. Some years back, um, I'll call him John, um, uh, even though that's not his actual name. Um, but he was pulled into the foster care system at about 12 um, when his mother dies. He's moved at least 20 times between temporary placements to, to group homes, never getting the services that he needed. I mean, he... John talked about he loved cars and he really wanted at some point to become a mechanic, but the agency couldn't even, wouldn't even help him with the cost or the process of getting a driver's license, right? So meanwhile, you know, what I uncover with John is while he's in the system, um, he's eligible for survivor benefits because his parent died. The agency figures that out, doesn't tell John, doesn't tell them that they're applying for benefits on his behalf. Um, doesn't tell them that they're applying to take over control of the money as what's called a representative payee. And then they took every dime for him, from him without telling him, not only taking the money, but taking that connection, right, that potential connection to his deceased parent. If you think about what you could do with not just the money to help yourself, but to know your parent left resources for you to, to help yourself. So, and also as part of that, you know, like I've, I've become more and more driven in the research, I covered a contract or the state of Maryland contract with a company by the name of Maximus. And one of the contract documents literally referred to foster youth as a revenue generating mechanism, right? In this way of literally pursuing and taking survivor and disability benefits from from youth in their care. That's a practice, as, as I uncovered in, in, in my research and writings, is happening across the country. Mm -hmm. And then that's just one of the practices that led into finding all these revenue me mechanisms, which are very systems or justice, right, are also part of this yes. poverty industry. Well, so, Professor Hatcher, um, I have some follow-up questions about the, the case that you just talked about, um, because that person was uh, uh, 12 years old, you said, uh, who, was that that's right? That's right. Okay. Honestly, it's shocking to hear that um, the uh, the agency uh, essentially took money that he was entitled to as a survivor, uh, the survivor benefit, and never told him who was in custody of this twelve year old at the time. The the state foster care agency okay. you know, run by the the city um, at, at that point. The the counties and cities um, operate the the foster care agency. So. And they exist. It's a good question because, you know, their sole reason for existing is to protect and serve the welfare of vulnerable children. But then when you have this agency that exists to serve also seeks to exist, right? And they turn towards using their own beneficiaries, the children, the, the most vulnerable amongst us, right, who desperately need assistance, they turn towards using them as a source of revenue. And much of that was, was, was uh, the topic of my research and, and what I exposed in my first book, The Poverty Industry. 
Now, in this new book, and, and, and Justice Inc., I uncover that it's not just the human service agencies. Our courts, prosecutors, mm-hmm. probation departments, policing agencies are all contractually monetizing um, youth like John. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was thinking that in in situations where um, a child has lost their parents and someone uh, is a trustee for that child, for example, um, the idea is that the the monies are held in trust. But that's what you're saying did not happen in this case. What did the, did this kid ever see a penny of what they were entitled to? He did not. And and yes, and that's a key word you mentioned, trust, right? You know, the monies are supposed to be held in trust and the agency is supposed to be a fiduciary, you know, a relationship of of trust and obligation to only serve and protect the welfare of, of that child. So instead of 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 helping the, uh, John you know, learn he had this resource, maybe even helping him um, consider ways to conserve the funds, right? Learn financial literacy, to use literacy, use money that his deceased parent was able to leave for him by working and, and paying into the system, survivor benefits, right? Instead, the agency took the money without ever telling John that he even had access to that money in the first place. And, 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 and that example, you know, um, agencies will not only pursue survivor benefits uh, through Social Security. Um, if a foster child has a parent who died in the military, they will also pursue and take those survivor benefits as well. How common is this? Unfortunately, it's it's vastly common, but but little understood. On that issue, um, we're seeing an increase in awareness. Uh, gradually. And and since the last book that I wrote, um, myself and other advocates have been uh, working with uh, um, other officials in in various states and counties, including former foster youth. Um, So they have a voice, an advocate for change. And now over 10 states are moving in the right direction, but we're not there yet on that issue. Mm -hmm. But that, again, that just scratches the surface, unfortunately, of all these revenue mechanisms in which not only the agencies, but our courts, which are supposed to be monitors of mission, right? They're supposed to be reviewing the agency actions, yes. right? Are instead entering their own contractual deals to monetize children and the poor. Well, a little bit later in the show, we're going to focus really on the courts and we're going to use the state of Ohio uh, as an example, Professor Hatcher, because you've written extensively about uh, juvenile courts in uh, in Ohio. Uh, but I want to get right to one common belief uh, about the justice system in this country, because we're already getting some uh, some comments from listeners uh, along the lines of uh, one person on Facebook who says, simply put, don't break the law. You won't have concerns about the legal system. It seems the court system costs taxpayers billions of dollars. So there's this presumption that if you are entangled in the justice system, um, uh, and especially if you're poor and entangled in the justice system, the failing isn't with the courts, but rather with you as a person. How would you respond to that, Professor Hatcher? Right. Well, unfortunately, most people don't have uh, full awareness of how the systems are operating and how low-income individuals and children um, and in particular are pulled in to the systems. So, you know, juveniles can can be pulled in, youth can be pulled into the system, both through uh, allegations of, of abuse or neglect. Most of the cases in the child welfare system come from neglect allegations, which are a direct result of poverty, where you have a struggling parent doing 
her best, right? You know, to try to uh, struggle with with barrier after barrier after, of of poverty, that's trying to keep the family together. Um, and then uh, the child who is facing difficult situations um, is can often be referred to the juvenile justice side of things through uh, delinquency proceedings, right? Often it can even come from the school that is supposed to be educating the child will instead make a referral. And there, there's been you know multiple heartbreaking and unfortunate reports written about the school to prison pipeline. So um, youth you know, pulled into the system are not there by choice. Right. And what and then we learn that not only are they being harmed by these systems, they're being monetized. Mm. The harm is being monetized. Well, I mean, in the subtitle of your book, you call it the commodification of children and the poor. So we're going to, again, dig deep into one particular uh, example of how Daniel Hatcher says the courts are engaging in this uh, commodification. And we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're speaking with Daniel Hatcher. His new book is Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. And we have an excerpt of it at our website, onpointradio.org. Now, Professor Hatcher, uh, in the book, you talk about um, Ohio uh, quite a bit and the juvenile courts in Ohio. And you say that, quote, the juvenile courts in Ohio run like a business and that mostly unknown to the public, the juvenile courts began a strategy in 1996 to make money when removing children from their homes. Now, that's quite a statement. So let's use one of the examples that you lay out in the book of Hamilton County in Ohio. Tell us more about Hamilton County. Sure. Well, Hamilton County, like m- several counties in Ohio, what, what I uh, uncover in, in the book um, is, again, just one example of, of, of these revenue schemes and multiple courts engaging in the same practice as in Ohio. Um, but the juvenile courts, um, like Hamilton County, are, are literally entering contracts Uh, to become part of the executive branch, to take on the foster care agency role. And if you just pause and think about that for a second, you know, we we had a revolutionary war in in this country, right, to escape tyranny, to try to escape centralized power in one entity at at that time, the the English crown. Um, So the founders created a structure of government supposed to be 
uh, uh, separation of powers, crucial separation between the branches, and, and most crucial within that, the independence of our judiciary. But here you have the courts, the juvenile courts in Ohio literally contract and become part of the executive branch. And then they take on this foster care agency role. So then what they do, like if they put on their court hat, so to speak, you know, and they adjudicate a child delinquent, um, and then they can put on their contractual foster care agency hat, remove a child from their home, or label a child as a foster care candidate at constant risk of removal, right? And then the court puts its court hat back on again, reviews its own actions, right? And if it reviews itself positively, it can generate foster care for e-revenue, a federal funding stream of foster care that are intended to provide assistance to foster care agencies to help children, but instead the courts found a way to tap into that. And it's resulting in millions of, of dollars being uh, generated for the Ohio juvenile courts. Well, as, it, uh, as I quoted from, 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 you, from you in the book, uh, you were looking at some documents from Hamilton County Juvenile Courts, their own documents that said a decade ago, right, back in 2013, uh, that in one year there was more than, what, uh, there was more than $1.8 million generated through this. Right. And, and still today, you know, m- multiple counties are generating millions annually from, from this process and, and not just the, um, the foster care revenue. So, if, you know, so if you think about that, that, again, the courts, you know, are incentivizing the pursuit of revenue. And it's a, 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 just a complete abdication of constitutional responsibility for impartiality. Right. It's crucial that our justice, justice officials are only guided by equal and impartial justice, not money. And not only do you have that pursuit of these Ohio courts of the foster care revenue, right, when they remove a child from their home, remove a poor child from their home, right, um, they can also then turn and pursue revenue by going after the parent of that poor child for what's called child support, right, but then that will be owed, pursued to pay back the foster care that was just caused by the juvenile court, mm-hmm. right? You know, so so the, the the financial harm just keeps expanding. So you say that at least 27 Ohio juvenile court systems entered, have entered these kinds of deals, right, where they're both adjudicating juvenile cases, then through... Uh, contracts, right, with uh, with some with private com- with private companies, with uh, they're they're running the, the the foster care as well. The contracts with the state agencies, with the state directly. agencies, with, with the with the state okay. agency, and then and then they'll contract with often a private company, a revenue maximization contractor to help maximize that revenue. What does a revenue maximization contractor mean in this context? Right. Well, it doesn't sound good in, in my mind, like, you know, because then the reason I don't think it sounds good is because our courts, they're not supposed to be a revenue producing factory. Right. You know, they are supposed to exist for this pure pursuit of equal and impartial justice. But we're seeing this shift and so strikingly in these contractual agreements. And I have copies of these of these contracts, right, where they're literally shifting from equal and impartial justice to maximizing efficiency and revenue, using the vulnerable populations that they're supposed to exist to serve. You, here's how you describe what sounds almost like a vertical integration scheme, right, uh, that the courts in Ohio have taken on. So I'm going to read quite an extended passage here. You say, 
quote, the judges hire attorneys to act as magistrates for much of the caseload and combine services that are supposed to be independent into business structures with hundreds of employees. The courts operate their own juvenile detention centers, jailing children as young as 10. The courts oversee work programs in which children as young as 12 work to repay court order costs. Although children are supposed to have independent advocates, the courts run the child advocacy programs The courts operate their own probation departments with probation officers using the children to claim more foster care revenue. Some of the courts run their own residential treatment centers, allowing the courts to claim yet more foster care funds when placing children in their facilities. And several courts even started their own schools and more. The list goes on. Now, as I read through this section, Professor Hatcher, it's hard not to come away almost with this caricature image of the people in the Ohio juvenile justice system as these, you know, almost like Monopoly game type game type figures with a monocle in one eye and just looking at children across the state of Ohio with, you know, dollar signs floating over their heads. But we're talking about a whole system here that is certainly peopled with with good folks who want to try to do the best for the children of Ohio. So what happened back in 1996? What was the 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 uh, the beginning causes of this system that has since emerged. Well, the the causes have been this this gradual harmful shift again away towards why they exist, right? You know, and and you see this increasing partnering with private companies, including the partnering with the revenue contractors who are helping the. Judicial officials, prosecutors' offices, probation, our human service agencies, to increasingly shift towards that focus on money, maximizing revenue and efficiency, right? So they 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 view themselves as an operation, right, that needs to generate sufficient revenue for their operations and the commodity, right? They need to pull in the kids, they need the bodies, you know, like to, in order to pull into these factories to keep processing. And then we see like one of the chapters in the book, I also discuss our detention facilities and, mm-hmm. and juvenile jails and the like. But you mentioned the character, like one of the, I uncovered one of even the training slides I found for the for the juvenile courts in, in Ohio um, in terms of how to increase the claiming for foster care revenue through the children. And they literally used the Flintstones and Jetsons, as as an example on this slide, sort of like like they're trying to make a joke, I guess, out of generating revenue from vulnerable youth. And one of the characters who's supposed to be a child, um, Betty Rubel, right, misspelled Rubel instead of Rubble um, and, and that situation. And in this training, it's not only that the courts are uh, pursuing revenue through services, right, administrative costs, frequently much more. Right, so the courts are literally using poor children, right, to fund overhead, um, and this c- includes everything from salaries and fringe benefits to trainings, right, to uh, the depreciation of courthouse buildings. You know, I even saw an example discussing that they could claim the administrative costs of the process of claiming administrative costs. Right, you know, mm-hmm. so it becomes almost like a pyramid scheme of the more the processing, the more they claim, the more revenue 
they can claim okay. all through the children. So, so Professor Hatcher, in a few minutes, I'm going to dig deeper into what the precipitating causes of this are. But we have someone um, patiently waiting on the line here who also has firsthand experience in the Ohio court system because we wanted to get, we wanted to, you know, really focus on Ohio because you do such a good job at uncovering uh, these quite startling facts, and we needed to hear someone who who was living that. So, Jack Freck joins us today from Athens, Ohio. He was director of the Athens County Department of Job and Family Services from 1981 to 2015, and he now works on poverty issues um, at Ohio University. Jack Freck, welcome to On Point. Hello, Magna. Uh, thanks for ha- thanks for doing this program yeah. in the first place. This is a, a very important topic, and uh, thank you for doing this. So you heard um, the quite serious uh, set of details and accusations that Professor Hatcher is laying out here. And again, this is not unique to Ohio. I want to emphasize that Professor Hatcher's book is full of examples from across the country. But but regarding what he says about Ohio, Jack, does it uh, does it match your experience when you were working at Athens County? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Daniel's and and appreciated a great deal his his first book on poverty industry, but this one as well. Uh, you know, this this is some of the stuff that's hidden down in the weeds, but it, it represents a larger picture of uh, basically our unwillingness to actually give resources directly to poor people. Uh, but we're more than willing to fund any number of other organizations around them. Mm. Uh, and, of course, the fact that we don't give them the money directly exacerbates their problems greatly, which ends up, you know, getting them much more involved in child welfare, uh, uh, criminal justice systems, all these other yeah. things, because they're, they're out there struggling to survive every day. Now, I understand you became aware of this problem first um on a day where you actually were uh, paying a court fine yourself. What happened? I was uh, at the uh, municipal court and I was going in to pay a traffic fine. And uh, I saw a sign that said uh, that there was a $25 fee to uh, apply to get a public defender. Uh, And, of course, knowing, you know, how little money, uh, virtually no money poor people had, I was pretty much shocked to see that we were even asking them to pay just to submit an application to get a public defender. Uh, And, you know, that that really opened my eyes up. And and from that time on, we spent uh, we organized a uh, a reentry program. Uh, we got much more involved in the criminal justice system, uh, looking at all the ways that, uh, you know, essentially we're trying to fund our criminal justice system on user fees, uh, mm-hmm. which is the most regressive form of taxation for poor people who are disproportionately affected by that system. Uh, and it's just a, a stupid way to, to try to fund fund that system. Mm. Now, Jack uh, Freck, hold on here for just a second. Professor Hatcher, uh, is it constitutional to require someone to pay a $25 fee just to apply to get a public defender when my understanding of the Constitution was that everyone had the right to uh, representation? Well, I would argue that it's not. And um, and many jurisdictions will charge more than that, you know, for, for, for the fees. Um, and then when you get at the courts themselves, 
generating their own revenue through these fees, not just those fees, but for um, you know ordering fines and then and then fees upon fees on top of that, and enlisting the probation department to do the same, and then they're sharing the revenue. That is clearly unconstitutional, right? Because the courts, the probation offices, prosecutors become financially incentivized in that pursuit of revenue, and that's directly the opposite of what's required by our Constitution of due process and partiality. Hmm. Jack Freck, I'm sure over the years you spoke with judges, right, in uh, Athens County, if not um, beyond in Ohio. Uh, What did they say about uh, what they understood regarding the system that has been built up since the the mid-'90s? Well, I I think that many of the judges I've talked to, you know, are aware of the... uh, the irony and the conflict of, uh, of the fact that the people who are standing in front of them are there because they're so poor, uh, you know, that this has created so many problems. Uh, and yet, you know, it's, it's evolved. The fin- financing system for the courts have evolved in such a way that uh, they need to have those people standing there in order to help pay their, their staffs. Uh, it's, you know, go- going back a little farther on this, uh, you know, back in the 80s, uh, I distinctly remember when uh, child support program started offering some reimbursement for this kind of administrative cost. Prior to that time, the courts placed uh, dealing with child support at the very lowest level of their interest. Uh, and the same thing, I think, was true for, for child welfare issues. Uh, but then when suddenly we had a resource available to help them pay for at least some of this cost for administration, for magistrates, those kind of things. Uh, obviously, they took much more of an interest. But I, I can give you a direct example in our county where we literally only had one judge in our county until we got aggressive about filing child support cases. We created enough cases that they they were then able to create a new judgeship. So now we had two judges instead of one one of which was only there because of the number of child support cases we we filed. And they, of course, ended up hiring a full-time magistrate to hear those cases. For years after that, whenever I would discuss any issue with a judge, one of the questions they'd always ask me, you know, are we still going to keep seeing this many child support cases? You know, I mean, it, it had become vital to literally the existence of that judge's position and, of course, a number of, of staff members at the court. Uh, so there's no doubt that, you know, that they, they became, uh, they had a huge vested interest in keeping those cases in front of them, which on one hand was progress. I mean, they were actually hearing a lot more child support cases, doing more about it. But on the other, they, they certainly were having to make decisions uh, with a, a vested interest in, in the back of their minds. Jack, we've only got you for another minute. Um, this sounds like a very, both now, uh, now a system that's, that is, is rife with self-interest, uh, and quite complex. What would you begin to do to untangle it? Well, in the first place, we need to fund our, our court systems with tax dollars because the courts protect all of us. Uh, you know, it's just not, uh, I mean, keeping in mind that not everyone involved in the court system is, is guilty of anything. Uh, and that, you know, this whole idea of having these targeted funding sources based on certain people 
is is always going to skew the outcome. And so the courts need to be adequately funded. And the other is we we need to make we need to start giving this money directly to poor people. Uh, I mean, that's the problem of poverty. They don't have enough money. Well, Jack Freck, former director of the Athens County Department of Job and Family Services in Athens County, Ohio. He served in that position from 1981 to 2015, now works on poverty issues at Ohio University. Mr. Freck, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Daniel Hatcher, stand by. We're going to talk a lot more uh, about this issue of profit and the U.S. court system. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Daniel Hatcher joins us today. His new book is titled Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. And Professor Hatcher, we're getting quite a few comments here coming in online. Holly Forsman says, this is heartbreaking. Removing kids from impoverished homes and stealing the state funds allocated to their foster care is why there's a special place in hell for these administrators. Whereas someone calling themselves law dog says, being born into a capitalist system that funds the education for youth should include how to stay out of those systems. You cannot expect standards if you do not lead and teach it. Now, we focused for a bit there on um, Hamilton County and the juvenile courts in Hamilton County, Ohio. Uh, and Professor Hatcher, we actually reached out to um, people who are currently serving in those courts. And one of them is Carrie Bloom, who is an administrative judge in the Hamilton County Juvenile Court. Uh, and again, that encompasses Cincinnati in Ohio. And um, she took a look at what you had to say, Professor Hatcher, and she says, Judge Bloom says, um, that she believes you got some of the details wrong. The book relates the number of children that the court takes away from their parents. The, the book says the court takes custody of, which that's just not true. The court never has custody of children except for physical custody, of course, when they are detained after maybe like a murder or a shooting. But in this case, the court never takes custody. The Jobs and Family Services Agency takes custody and places them in a foster home or a, a grandparent's home. So, Professor Hatcher, I uh, would love to hear your response to Judge Bloom there. Sure. Well, uh, Hamilton County is one of the courts listed on their own documents, right, you know, with the uh, Ohio agencies and justice institutions as one of those courts that have engaged in these contracts, right? So what they do is directly contract for the courts to become the foster care placing agency in these particular types of cases, including juvenile delinquency um, proceedings, right? So, so, the courts do, through their contractual role, have that 
obligation, that custodial guardianship obligation for children, that foster care agency role that they contract to do for the state agency. So this is their own contractual documents in which they're doing. And, and in some of the past um, uh, annual reports for Hamlin County, at least not just the revenue from the, the child support contracts that we, we mentioned before, but also these Title IV-E foster care revenue contracts. And um, I believe in most recent years, um, they don't show the the revenue on some of their annual reports. But if you go back, um, I believe back around 2015, um, over $2 million in a year from this uh, this contractual deal. Mm. It seems like so then those relationships may actually not be entirely visible to a judge like Judge Hamilton sitting on the bench. Well, the, uh, the issue was brought forward to the Supreme Court of Ohio was concerned about the ethics of, of this practice. And that was brought by um, some juvenile court judges. Uh, the Ohio, and then I uncover all this in the book, mm-hmm. I, and I provide the links to the documents. Uh, the Supreme Court sort of punts it back um, to the Ohio juvenile court judges, and they review themselves. A panel of juvenile court judges review themselves in this process of reviewing themselves, right, in this revenue-generating contracts. Um, and they decide what they're doing is fine. Um, and I, I lay out in the book my analysis for why they're mm. legally incorrect. Now, um, I just made a quick error there a little earlier. I said Judge Hamilton. Her name is Judge Carrie Bloom. So forgive me for that error. And she works in Hamilton County, uh, the juvenile court system there in Ohio. Now, she also told us, though, that she is in complete agreement with you, Professor Hatcher, about the fact that the court system is in need of reform and improvement. But Judge Bloom added that in her county, at least, the funds, she says, generated by the courts don't necessarily go into the court's own coffers. Of course, it does not sit well with me. Some of the things that the author mentioned are likely happening and should stop. In Hamilton County, a very, very, very small amount of money comes into our courts through costs and fines. And part of that money is what we would generate. It's not even generate. It's what we would collect for filing fees on private complaints. So those are people who come in off the street and decide to make a custody or a child support complaint themselves. That is not something that law enforcement or the court or anyone else has asked them to do. So, Professor Hatcher, where is the money going? Well, on their own annual reports, right? It lists their sources of revenue, um, and those sources include, you know, as we discussed earlier, you know, cited in the book, the the links to the actual court documents are provided, including revenue from the child support 4D um, contracts, and then these Title IV foster care revenue contracts, on which again the courts are contracting to take on the foster care placing agency. Role and then the one year I believe it was 2015 the court itself lists that revenue at over two million, right? Just from just from that Title IV E and that's that's not including the potential fines and fees that that can be pulled in and fines and fees pursued. It's not just the juvenile courts that happens in the municipal courts and the family courts um, and the like. So so it's um, it's unfortunately a, a common yeah. practice. And, and look, I will say also like you know even if you have an individual in the in the justice system, right? All justice officials are, 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 are ethically um, bound, you know, to 
pursue impartial and equal justice. And if you have a, um, a justice official, um, a prosecutor, I include myself, you know, attorneys or officers of the court, trying their best to be true to their ethics, if they are operating within a system that is structurally compromised, that is ethically compromised, and I lay out in the book why they and their, their practices are ethically compromised and they need to right those wrongs. So this is where I just want to have us have a much more direct conversation, Professor Hatcher, because uh, Jack Freck, who we spoke to earlier, um, he, he mentioned this, but let's just say it. Again, I, ke- I keep asking about those precipitating factors, right, that led to this system that you're describing here in just gruesome detail for us. And the courts themselves would say this. You, in your book, you quote, again, just using um, Hamilton County in Ohio as as an example. You say, quote, the court explained how they use these collaborations, again, with, with some private companies, to increase revenue to offset county funding cuts in a continuing effort to manage the budget reductions. So this this new compromise system that you're talking about, it didn't come out of nowhere, there is a series of decisions made perhaps outside of the justice system that have, that have forced the, the emergence of this ethically compromised and even constitutionally compromised uh, commodification that you're talking about. Right. Well, and again, you know, what you're referring to are in their own documents, right? You know, and, and then you have these collaborations between the, the, the county courts, uh, the county elected officials, you know, the county commissioners in terms of thinking, you know, where is revenue going to come from, sometimes the state agency officials, right? And what you see increasingly, you know, I've, I've looked at budget document after budget documents, you know, multiple, um, you know, further contractual deals attached to minutes of, of commissioner meetings of, of county commissioners. And you, you just see this pattern and this, this harmful trend, right, of they're all focused on revenue and efficiency, revenue and efficiency. You know, again, it's that agencies that exist to serve also seek to exist, and, and they've gotten on the wrong side of that tension. Yeah, but they're, 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 ca- they're focused on that because it sounds like they, they have to be because uh, their sources of funding previously, i.e. state and county funding, uh, has has diminished. I mean, Jack Freck earlier was talking about how in Athens County they had, for a particular part of their judicial system there, they had one judge, which wasn't enough. So in order to to increase the the number of available uh, you know judges, they had to find some way to do it. Right. I mean, so what I'm saying is like this didn't come out of nowhere. And should we be looking at county officials or state officials who actually have a a lot of influence over how much? Uh, a court system's budget is as uh, as the sources of these problems. Well, I believe they're all the sources, and we should be looking at all, right? You know, to the to the justice officials directly um, who have these ethical and constitutional obligations, and to the county um, elected officials and appointed officials, you know, who have control over the over the money, right? And the statewide officials. And yes, like we need a neutral mechanism of funding. Um, for the the level of revenue that the various justice institutions need to operate um, for their mission, right? But again, you know that that level that they need should not be driven by themselves, mm. right? To keep their operations going, right? To keep again expanding their their 
their their efficiency, um, maybe even pulling in the use of artificial intelligence that I write about in the book as well, right? Algorithms, right? Increasing efficiency and revenue, right? Only existing to the level in which the individuals need their assistance. When they treat those individuals as commodities instead of human beings to be served with welfare and justice, that effort shifts. Mm. Well, one more uh, comment here from uh, Judge Carrie Bloom, again, from the Hamilton County, Ohio, juvenile court system. Um, And, you know, she says that she believes really the responsibility lies uh, with the county and the state. The power rests with those who make the laws in a separation of powers. Here, me as the judge, my job is to enforce the laws, not to make them, right? And so I don't think that there is any way that me, Judge Bloom, can change the law without going to the legislature and asking them to. The people with the power to change our costs and fines, they are controlling our state's purse, and they are controlling so many other things about how a court works, including how much money courts have to pay back for operations that happen daily. That's Judge Carrie Bloom from the Hamilton County Juvenile Court System in Ohio. Now, Professor Hatcher, um, at the risk of oversimplifying, I'm trying to visualize a causal chain here, right? Because to your point, these compromised systems, they don't just come out of nowhere. So in the beginning, I'm seeing, you know, at least one of the factors being a reduction in funding from state and local coffers for the judicial system in places across the country. So then courts have to look for other ways to secure Funding And that funding question becomes a revenue question because in order to do that, they're partnering with external companies, as you've described, whose motive is also profit-seeking, right? So there's, there's a profit question that gets injected into this system. And then, it be, then because of that, it becomes something else. Like you said, it becomes that comp- ethically compromised, self-sustaining system whose interest becomes not necessarily justice, but the maintenance of revenue. Now, presuming that you don't necessarily have an issue with my simplification there, I'm having a difficult time seeing how we unwind that. Where where do we put pressure on to correct the system? I think that's a great way of describing it, uh, unfortunately. Um, so, yes, like you see these collaborations between uh, the justice institutions, you know, again, not just our courts, our prosecutors, offices, probation departments, policing agencies, right? Often, partnering with private companies. And, and then what you're seeing is, is not just that increasing collaboration with private actors or, inc- or increasing outsourcing of, of some of the functions, but it's, it's sort of a distorted form of capitalism in which our institutions of justice are shifting and operating like those private actors. They're taking on the mindset, right, of maximizing efficiency and revenue rather than maximizing equal and impartial Justice, how we start to unwind it, I think, has to start with us individually, right, including attorneys operating in the system, including judges operating in the system, right? I do think there is concern with the funding structure, to be sure, coming from the state level and the county level, 
right? But in Ohio, it's the courts, you know, that are that are entering and signing on to these contractual arrangements, right? You know, like so, it it, it falls to all of us, and and it's crucial, right? And this, these aren't just words that are theoretical, right? In terms of the you know the words of equal justice, you know, the words in our constitution, they only have meaning if we give them meaning. Mm-hmm. Ethics only have meaning if we give those ethical obligations meaning, and it has to start with us individually. Now, to be clear, though, are you saying that your analysis leads you to conclude that the amount of money that some of the uh, the court systems, or let's say the, the legal systems that you looked at across the country, the amount of money that they claim to need to operate perhaps is more than they actually need because of, you know, these, these the compromised profit-seeking aspect? I think there are certainly some times where they do need more revenue, and then there there are times that they don't. You know, if they're focused more on that revenue, right, and using rather than serving, using the poor, using children rather than serving them, right. You know, I, I write about some of the, the vastness of the probation departments in, in California, um, right, where they're also pulling this 4E revenue. It's become this huge factory, right? You know, again, where they're incentivized, the more children that are either pulled in, like, and either removed from their homes or labeled as foster care candidates at constant risk of removal, right? And then in this carceral system still with probation and all the monitoring, right? Ankle monitors and drug testing and, you know, endless, you know, unannounced um, visits, you know, like where they're at constant risk of removal, the more the children are processed, the more money, that they make. You know, I, I, I write about one small example of a, of a municipal court out of Oregon that lists, again, on its own budget documents and, and the particular year that, that, the, that the, is analyzed in the book, they were pulling in more revenue than their total costs. So they call themselves a justice, justice court, but they're really operating like a profit court. Well, Daniel Hatcher's new book is titled Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. And we have an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Professor Hatcher, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.